From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The State Department would create a Bureau for International Cybersecurity Efforts according to a recommendation of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. It's part of a larger movement to get the State Department involved in cybersecurity issues. Fifth Domain reports the Commission proposes to call the office the Bureau for Cyberspace Security and Emerging Technologies. The General Services Administration would get a bigger role in planning transitions with presidential candidates. The new Presidential Transition Enhancement Act instructs agencies to make plans for changes to senior leadership ahead of elections. Federal Times reports GSA will provide office space and transition support to the candidates. The Internal Revenue Service will issue new solicitations using its new pilot IRS procurement vehicle. The IRS plans to award more money this time around via the multi-phased funding tool. NextGov reports the next iteration of the program will come in the next few months. The Coast Guard's $12.3 billion budget request for fiscal year 2021 includes funding for two of its cutter programs and a new icebreaker. For more on the top acquisition priorities for the Coast Guard, Admiral Michael Johnston, Chief Acquisition Officer for the Coast Guard, and Rear Admiral Doug Schofield, Director of Acquisition Programs and Program Executive Officer at the Guard. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on. What are the major recap priorities that the Guard has set out, not just in this budget request, but more broadly, more strategically? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, we're in the middle of recapitalizing basically our entire surface fleet uh, from uh, national security cutters, uh, fast response covers, the polar security cutter, uh, which we're in the middle of, and, uh, and the offshore patrol craft. In, in addition, which is probably not as widely known, so that's sort of the white cutter fleet mm -hmm. that people are aware of, we have the black hull fleet as well. Um, so the waterways commerce cutter is also in the works and we're trying to, to uh, issue a, a request for proposal for, for those relatively soon. But that those cutters facilitate $5.4 trillion of economic uh, business for the United States and, and, uh, and uh, they are key to, to that infrastructure. Tell me about the difference between the two types of, of uh, ships that you just mentioned there because you've got the ships that go to sea uh, Arctic, Pacific, Atlantic, and so on, and then you've got a, a fleet that is more internal in the United States, right? Yes, sir. Um, so uh, the national security cutter is for our offshore mm -hmm. uh, work. Uh, the fast response cutter is a little closer in, uh, and the offshore patrol cutter is sort of in the middle there that handles uh, the uh, within the exclusive economic mm -hmm. zone. The polar security cutter is for all the Arctic regions, mm -hmm. both. Uh, both uh, Alaska and North and in the Antarctic uh, to provide access and free trade through, throughout that region. Admiral Schofield, when you have so many needs in the Guard, how do you set priorities for where you want to direct the money? How do you figure out how you want to spread it around? So, good question, Francis. Uh, we do that through our capabilities director and our senior leadership. So we work through those programs, we map out the best way to meet that capability, then we prioritize when, where, and how we're going to uh, field those new capabilities out there mm -hmm. to the operational community. Obviously very important and that prioritization is critical to meet the, the new uh, mission needs of the Coast Guard. How do you deal with those those people out there who all believe that theirs is the most important 
mission to provide that they need the equipment more than everybody else around the guard? So great question. So the big part is the communication with our operational community, mm -hmm. both active duty, civilian and reserves. We talk about those priorities. The more we do that across our, our leadership team and the working level, it really uh, brings an understanding of why our priorities are set the way they are. Uh, as we uh, field our new offshore uh, classes of cutters, as well as maintaining our helicopters uh, for 10, uh, 10 plus years, mm -hmm. 10,000 hours in the air, very critical for the maritime security of our nation. I think a lot of people would think of the Guard, think of ships as a necessary part of the Guard. Your aviation fleet is just as important, uh, right, Admiral Johnston? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and I will say that the, the, the beauty is that uh, most Coast Guard units are multi-mission. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're doing search and rescue, law enforcement, ice patrols, whatever it is that the nation needs at the moment. And so, uh, and the resources that we're providing uh, are also multi-mission. What are your acquisition priorities as far as the aviation fleet? Uh, we are buying uh, C-130Js and missionizing those, uh, missionizing uh, C-144s and C-27. So missionization is basically uh, sensor packages that uh, that uh, help us uh, understand what we're, where we're flying, uh, viewing and transitioning that uh, to command centers as well as uh, cutters. We're also doing our helo fleet, uh, both the H-60s and the 65 uh, service life extensions on both of those. I think the icebreaker is probably the highest profile program. It's the one that I've talked about the most on, on this program because you have one and it's been around 1975, I believe, was when that was commissioned. What's the trajectory look like for that program right now? Uh, we are in the process of uh, doing the design with, uh, with a contractor right now. Uh, that's on track to deliver in 24, mm -hmm. and uh, the first one. Yes. And uh, we have a plan for uh, hopefully uh, up to six. Uh, right now, uh, one, and we're funding for, uh, for number two. Mm. What do you need from industry to get these ships in the water as quickly as possible? What are they providing to you? How are you interacting with them? Industry, uh, well, I would say the acquisitions is a team sport. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have uh, both uh, the entire Coast Guard, we have the Department of Home Security, and Department of Defense, because that industrial base that builds those ships, that uh, builds those aircraft, uh, that is key. So partnering with industry on a regular basis uh, through the entire process of developing our requirements to optimizing times for when they can be delivered, getting all the information, those, all those partnerships uh, and engagement with industry are, are key. Uh, but I think everybody knows that we have a shortage of uh, technical expertise and engineers, and we have a need for people to go into those fields to be able to deliver that. I want to talk more about that relationship with industry and what innovation looks like in the Coast Guard when we come back. More of my conversation with Admiral Johnston and Rear Admiral Schofield when Government Matters continues. We'll be right back. Welcome back. More of my conversation on how the Coast Guard collaborates with the other services and with industry. More with Admiral Michael Johnston, Chief Acquisition Officer of the Guard, and Rear Admiral Doug Schofield, Director of Acquisition Programs and Program Executive Officer at the Guard. Um, Admiral Schofield, we talked a little bit before the break about uh, innovation and what that looks like. Every branch of the military is, is talking about innovation and how they interact with industry about it. 
How do you know it when you see it in the Coast Guard, whether it's something that you're developing internally or it's something that a vendor's bringing to you and saying, we think this will solve a problem that you have? So great question. A, a big part is, the, is that collaboration. Mm -hmm. So we get to understand the risks, how, how, uh, how that technology has emerged in the marketplace. Uh, Coast Guard's very high on buying state-of-the-market technology at an affordable price. So we work through that, really that business case with industry, understand how that capability can enhance our missions, as well as be sustainable for the long term with our operational and support communities. Mm -hmm. So that, that discussion, industry really helps bring that to light for us. And then uh, we use our research, development, uh, test, evaluation, and innovation teams to, to help uh, really understand how to best use those new capabilities on our surface air and C5I assets in the field. And you share ideas back and forth with the other sea services on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. Uh, that's a big partnership, but I would say uh, now more than ever that partnership is alive and well. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, our polar security cutter, I have an integrated program office. Integrated meaning it's actually half Navy, half Coast Guard men and women both in our program office here in Washington, D.C., as well as our field office that does the oversight of the design and build of those cutters. It is a true collaborative team with the Navy. Very, very important. We also field a lot of Navy-type, Navy-owned systems and common communication systems that are critical for both uh, Department of Homeland Security and our DOD uh, partners. Those are critical for the future operations for the maritime security. Admiral Johnston, how have you seen the discussion with industry change, especially in the pre-requirements process? When you're just starting to think about what you need, what you want included inside the next thing, what, how, how, has, how have, has that dialogue changed over the years that you've been working in this field? Well, it's, it's gotten uh, much more uh, bi-directional. Mm -hmm. And so it used to be sort of one way, here's what we want, and tell us how best to do it. And now it's much more, hey, what's out there? Mm -hmm. What is the art of capability? What, what's the art of the market? And, uh, and where are you guys researching that may be helpful to us? And I'll give you a great, great example, uh, Francis. So we uh, are working through this uh, 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 shipboard uh, unmanned aerial system that we've deployed on NASA Security Cutter. And that is contractor-owned, contractor-operated, and the contract is set up in a way that it allows for them, because that technology is changing so rapidly, mm -hmm. that as the latest technology comes on board, they can bring it on board and test it on board our ships, and we're getting the latest and greatest at a very fast return, and, uh, and really what we're paying for is the intelligence that it's gathering. You're almost buying that as a service, it sounds like. Absolutely. So what did you have to do acquisition-wise to make that possible? Because that doesn't, I understand software as a service, I mean, that's a, a licensing issue. This doesn't sound like something that would lend itself to that naturally give it through the acquisition process. You're absolutely correct. And so uh, the Navy actually was prototyping and, and using it. We used their contract for a little bit to test it out. And then, uh, and then we did our own competition, refined the contract based on lessons learned from doing a couple deployments with the Navy. And, uh, and really it's about finding the right partner. That's an that's a interesting way of approaching it, and I'll be curious to see how this unwinds to see whether you get the results that you like, because that could potentially be a, a game changer, it sounds like. Well, I'll tell you, it already has. Uh, the, the CEOs of the cutters are raving about the capability, and really from a covert uh, surveillance perspective, really gives us uh, a, a new way 
to interact and uh, engage and from a law enforcement and search and rescue perspective. We talked a little bit in the first part of our conversation, Admiral Schofield, about the service life extensions that you're undertaking. Tell me more about what that encompasses and what you're stretching out and how. So great, Francis. Uh, importantly, our, from our aircraft perspective, so we're really recapitalizing some of our major afloat assets. At the same time, we're going to keep our aircraft running, and we, our plans are to recapitalize those with, with our DOD counterparts with a small and medium uh, range helicopters in the future. But to keep them running, we're, keep, we're giving both our small and our medium helicopters a 10,000 hour service life extension. A lot of that is upgrading electronics and upgrading uh, airframe components to make sure that they can last uh, for those 10,000 flight hours. As well as our surface fleet, we've got to maintain those systems as well. A lot of that is obsolescence management within those systems, upgrading those systems to be more capable for our operational commanders. Um, but we're also uh, some of the major systems to keep those ships running. For example, our medium endurance cutters uh, that are offshore uh, doing great Coast Guard missions. They're over 30 years old and we're upgrading some of the electrical systems and uh, other components to ensure that they can continue an extended service life uh, into the future. Um, are you finding, and either one of you can take this, uh, are you finding the same kinds of uh, value out of data in maintenance and projecting forward the kinds of things that you're talking about for uh, service life extension that the Navy's finding, the other sea services are finding? Absolutely. I'll turn this over to Doug, who used to be the CEO of our <laughs> Service Force Logistics Command that does all the maintenance. So. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, I would say that partnership uh, with uh, the Navy and DOD is really important on that. A hard part today is the turnover of components mm -hmm. and the technical refresh of our, of our elect electronic and electrical systems uh, there, computer systems, et cetera, um, and ensuring that the cybersecurity um, elements are, are embedded in those systems. So that's very, very important. And we continue those partnerships to make sure we have common systems and common, uh, and we really work with our DOD partners so that we can use the similar technology on our assets. And that's very, very important to us for that interoperability as well as sustainability for the fleet. Um, those systems, understanding that, uh, making sure that when we, we buy those systems, we understand the, the long-term sustainment uh, reality on maintaining those systems is pretty critical, whether it's a software or a, or a boat davit on a ship to make sure that we can maintain that long-term. That goes into all our projections and into our contract with industry and all, all those big discussions with industry going ahead. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming. It's great to have both of you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Up next, settlement agreements and how long they'll last. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new court ruling might impact your next agreement. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A new court ruling says settlement agreements between feds and their agencies might be void after a, quote, reasonable time has passed. That ruling can apply to any federal employee who has such an agreement. Dan Blair is senior counselor at the, the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is federal employees oftentimes will uh, take on the agency if they feel aggrieved and the agency and the federal employee will enter into a consent decree, a settlement agreement, but they won't put a time uh, for termination of these consent, decree, uh, consent decrees 
or settlement agreements. We saw in this case involving uh, the VA in Puerto Rico, this uh, consent decree went on for 16 years. Mm -hmm. And then we've seen others. There was a um, the Lovano uh, case that was raised back in 1980, went on for 20 some odd years. And when there's no, when the courts or when the parties do not put a termination date in these, then it's up to the party, uh, one of the parties, to go to court and say we've met the goals of the settlement agreement, we've met the goals of the consent decree. Situations have changed. Uh, the hostile work environment that may have been alleged has uh, no longer is no longer there. The people involved are no longer there, but it's it's. It's precedential, and there are a number of these out there. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be interesting to see if agencies or uh, try to terminate them and if the employees go to court. Are the issues that are involved in these settlement cases sufficiently subjective that you couldn't, that it's not practical to put a time limit on them? This situation will exist for five years. And then after that, we go back to where we were before. Well, I think that it could be more artfully crafted. Mm. It shouldn't go on in perpetuity. And oftentimes, that's what might happen. And so the administration is looking at these. Uh, I imagine agencies are burdened by some that are no longer relevant. Mm. The employee may be in completely different circumstances. And so I think it would be wise for uh, the parties involved to have a date certain that at least it would be reviewed and that these should not go on uh, for 20 or 30 years if the uh, underlying circumstances have been addressed. Another issue that you were heavily involved with when you were at OPM was the length of time it takes to hire a federal employee. The Office of Personnel Management now says it's changing the metric that it uses to measure that. What's the change and how does it, what, what difference does it make there? Well, it, there were two things in this that I thought were interesting. One, it's going to look at the time to hire for all hires, not just those who were on the U.S. who got their jobs through USA Jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because I've done some work for various agencies in the past couple of years, and agencies, in you know, told me we don't want to go on USA Jobs for multiple, you know, whether these are valid reasons or. Um, you know, perceptions that USA Jobs can't do the job for an agency or a department. But now they're going to do it for all hires. And is this going to, it, it'll be interesting to see the data to see if those who didn't go through USA Jobs, uh, if, they're, if they were more successful in bringing people on quick, more quickly than those that went through USA Jobs. And the second aspect of this was that they will now look at, I'm going to quote these yes. words directly, but they're going to look at uh, the time uh, involved from the date the hiring need is validated mm -hmm. to the entrance on duty. That's what they've always been doing. So it's when you walk in, the day you walk into your job. Mm -hmm. The second uh, piece of data they're going to collect is when the acceptance date was entered into. And I think that's important because sometimes the acceptance date and the time that they enter into the workforce mm -hmm. could be months. I know, for example, if you're hiring a veteran mm -hmm. or someone who is coming uh, transitioning from the military, they may not be available for the first two, three, you know, three, it might, might take two months to bring them on board. Mm -hmm. And that can skew the agency's hiring, time to hiring uh, metrics. So I think these are good changes. I want to watch the one about the uh, accounting for all hires mm -hmm. because is this going to be 
what, how are they going to, you know, the comparisons between those who go through USA Jobs and those who go the other routes? And what happens if those other routes turn, be, turn out to be quicker mm -hmm. or if they turn out to be not as quick? I think it, 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 will, um, it will bode for the future. I mean, it will have an impact on the future of where USA Jobs is going. And I think that's interesting because when you think about all of, or not all, most of the, uh, the special authorities that agencies are using are asking for, if you really dig into them, there's a component there, at least in a lot of them, of getting around USAjobs.gov yeah, because it's it's difficult, it's perceived to be it's difficult to use. It's perceived to be, and you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to why agencies want because they're mm -hmm. the ones who are on the ground trying to get these folks in. At the same time, you want, it, I think there is value in having a government-wide portal. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the so, issue is, is that the right portal? Right. And that's what the issue has always been, and isn't it? agencies always have said to me, they don't go to U.S. Uh, applicants don't go to USA Jobs. They come to, you know, the Department of Interior website to find the job, and so when they're bounced to USA Jobs, they get confused, going, "But I'm not applying there. I'm applying here," and so I think we'll have we'll have some data on this and see where we can go to improve federal hiring. Dan Blair, thanks as always. It's great to have you, my friend. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. So Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.